Please open your Bibles again with me to the epistle of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, and I hope that you do have one of the handouts that was handed to you when you came in this morning as we continue on with our series. 1 Peter chapter 3, as I mentioned, it was a good morning with our, our men yesterday morning. And uh, this year's theme for our men's ministry is Answer the Bell. And it's a theme, with, it's a boxing theme that we're kind of having fun with. And uh, every, every month we have our meeting, we, we imagine that we as men have gone 14 rounds in a boxing fight. And we're in the corner getting a breather. And what's gonna, what's gonna, how is God going to help us answer the bell into the 15th and final round to finish strong? That's kind of how we talk each month in our meetings. But I want to stay with that picture of boxing for just a moment with you this morning. And I wanted to take us to the corner of the boxing ring and perhaps after the 14th round and we've been in this fight. As you recall, you might not have ever boxed, but you've watched a lot of boxing movies, right? Rocky, The Prize Fighter, one of the best boxing movies ever. Remember that was Tim Conway and Don Knotts. Um, there are other ones, Here Comes the Boom, and, and many other good boxing movies. Um, but we, you, you see the fighter in the corner, and it's late in the fight. And in one of my favorite boxing movies, there's a conversation in the corner between this beat-up boxer, who's the star of the show, and his trainer. And the boxer says to his coach in the corner, before going back in for the final round, the boxer says, Coach, I see three fighters. He's been hitting the head so often. I see three fighters out there. And the coach wisely replied, hit the one in the middle. There's <laughs> a good chance you'll get him. You know, sometimes we feel like that boxer. As disciples of Jesus Christ, it can get hostile towards us out there. Either indirectly as we listen to the news raise its fist with applause and policies and our government with procedures and laws against our Creator. And because they are so bent on our Creator and what He's put in place in this world, and they're so living out the, the trajectory of Romans chapter 1, they've been delivered over, they've been given over, they've been given over to depravity. They can't swing and hit God, so they swing at you. It might be a stranger who finds out you're a Christian. It may be a friend who doesn't share your faith. Sometimes this even comes into the homes. And quite honestly, we feel like that boxer in the corner every once in a while. Every once in a while, we get a little breather. We get just a little breather. A little break from the persecution and the suffering, perhaps, in our community, or in our culture, or in our homes. And I want you to look at yourself in that corner this morning. You're between rounds. And my question is, what are you doing now that you're getting a breather? You're here, you're not with hostile people, hostile people against Christianity this morning. When you're taking that break between, between rounds, what do you do? Do you gripe at the culture with your breather? 
Do you blame other people for your getting hit? Do you plot how you're going to get revenge? Or perhaps you don't do any of that. You just kind of freeze right up. You don't know what to do and you don't want to go back out into play. What do you do between rounds? As we come to this passage in Peter this morning, he's going to get real clear and real forthright about what you must say to yourself between rounds so that you'll go back out even though you're going to get hit. Follow along as I read our text this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 13 and read down to verse 22. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who was at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. My theme this morning as I go through this paragraph with you is simply this. I believe that Peter is teaching us something in our corner that will prepare us for more persecution yet future. I believe that Peter is teaching us that present persecution is the roadway to eternal triumph. Let me say that again. Present persecution is the roadway to eternal triumph. We shouldn't be surprised with this theme for this passage of Scripture within 1 Peter because Peter's been telling us this was coming for the whole epistle up to this point in every chapter. Remember chapter 1, verse 6, we studied these words. We we greatly rejoice in the salvation to be revealed in the future. Even though now, for a little while, if necessary, look at this, you have been distressed by various trials. Look at verse 15. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. 
Because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We are to be holy like the one who bought us. And it will bring the same rejection. Look at chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which you, they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Suffering is here and more is coming. Now look down at verse 19 of chapter 2. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up, look at this, under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Go down to verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose of suffering since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example for you to follow in his steps. And then go down to chapter 3, verse 1. I think you're seeing a pattern here. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. And he's setting the stage there for potential persecution even within the marriage. He's been talking about the suffering that they've already experienced in the past. They're still experiencing in the present and they will experience in the future. And he's telling them that present persecution is the roadway to eternal triumph. And I believe we can organize Peter's thoughts this way. He gives you four realities that you are to recite to yourself between rounds. Four realities for you to recite to yourself between rounds when you're suffering for the sake of Jesus. The first reality, number one, remember this. You are invincible. You are invincible. It says in verse 13, as we, we, we come from verses uh, 8 through 12, speaking about our relationship with other believers, we come to verse 13 back to dealing with unbelievers. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? I so appreciate one of my favorite commentators on 1 Peter. His name's Thomas Schreiner, Southern Baptist scholar. And he says, suffering stalks the believer until the present evil age comes to an end. I mean, there it is, capsulized. It were, as long as we're alive in this life, we will be the targets because they're swinging at Jesus in us, behind us, and with us. Right. Now, what does the word invincible mean? What do I mean by invincible? I've got to tell you what it doesn't mean. Being invincible doesn't mean there will be no persecution. That's not what Peter's saying here, and I don't mean it with the word Invincible. It's also saying, it's not saying that there won't be pain in this life. We've been saved long enough to know that sometimes words, or even worse, hurt. It's not saying there's going to be no persecution or no pain or no problems as a Christian. It's not saying that at all. What is it saying? What do I mean by you are invincible based on verse 13? You being invincible does mean something not about your body, but about your beliefs. Not about your temple, so to speak, but about your testimony. That can't be snuffed out, even in the midst of persecution. Peter is, Peter is saying this on the, on the heels of his devotional meditating on Psalm 34, 
which we heard him give last week, starting in verse 10. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And from Psalm 34, as Peter uses it to touch both on the topic of my relationship with other believers, but also with a hostile world, there's one thing that I can enjoy that they can't touch, and it's my enjoyment of my God and the consistency of my testimony for my God. You hit me, more cologne's going to get out. The sweet-smelling savor, Paul will say in his epistle, it will come out. Someone during World War II approached a young Christian boy, age 12, in a certain village in Europe. And they recruited this young 12-year-old boy to join their military movement. And he refused. And the recruiters said to him, don't you know that we have power to kill you? And that 12-year-old boy says, well, don't you know that I have power to die for Christ? Yeah, he's invincible. It brings fresh meaning to verses like Psalm 56.4, in God, whose word I praise. In God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Or it's like Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be what? Against us. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? When you're in your corner, Peter starts out by saying, remember this, your testimony is invincible. When you go back out. Now, not only are your feet firm with this invincibility of your testimony, but your heart is very warm as well. And that leads us to the second reminder in your corner. Not only are you invincible, you are blessed. You are blessed. Did you see that in the first part of verse 14 when I read it? Look at verse 14. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are what? It's blessed. That doesn't mean you're giddy. And that doesn't mean you're, you're, you're going around oblivious that dark things are happening to you or being said about you because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. It's not that. This particular Greek word, makarios, is not just being someone going down the street with a bulldozer smile on their face. No, this word is a word that means you are privileged. If you suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ, you are privileged. Or as one of my Bible professors used to teach us, you if you're blessed, Makarios, you, of all people, are in the place that should be envied. See, Peter, right here in verse 14, I believe, as do many, that he's just simply quoting a sermon he once heard 
firsthand. The Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes, remember those? You might want to jot down this reference and join me in Matthew chapter 5 for your reminder. As I read a few verses from the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to hear where Peter got this statement. Matthew chapter 5. We read Luke's version of this sermon in Luke 6, but I want you to go to Luke 5, or Matthew 5, because here we will see something really cool. This is Peter cashing in on his memory, so to speak, to make this point. Verse 3 Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. You say, this sounds great. Sign me up. Really? Do you see these telescoping out of each other? You have the poor in spirit. This is someone who knows that left to themselves, they are spiritually bankrupt. What does that lead to? It leads to someone mourning their spiritual condition. And it makes them a kind, gentle, humble person towards others. Why? Because not only their own poverty, but they are hungering and thirsting for a righteousness that's going to have to come from outside of themselves. We call that an alien righteousness. It doesn't originate with me. It's got to come from outside of me and rescue me. And when they find that, it changes them into a merciful person, one who's growing in purity at the very level of the heart. And now they reach out to other people as peacemakers, not just helping people get along, but bringing the message of peace of the Messiah to those who still need it so they can join them in this journey. You say, well, yeah, I like that. That sounds good. Are you sure? Keep reading now. Verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The shorthand of that is, if you're living out verses 3 through 9, you're going to stick out and you're going to get hit. And you're blessed if that happens. You are in a place to be envied. So you better explain that part. Okay, keep reading. Look at verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Why? That hurts. Yeah, but look, you understand, your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, when they swing at you because you belong to the king, listen, it puts you in pretty good company. The prophets. Even Jesus himself. Yes, you are blessed. You are blessed. I remember when I was in seventh grade, so I was 12 years old, I guess, 12 or 13. And I went to visit my sister and her husband in New York with my my parents. And and my brother-in-law helped put on Christian productions there. And and, um, it could be anything from a Christian musical to uh, uh, singing groups being brought in. And he let me start, as a 12-year-old, where I got to go backstage and work the house lights. I had an agenda for the, for the concert and, or the production, and I would know when to turn what light switches on for the whole, the whole auditorium. I felt pretty good about that. I'm 12 years old. My friends aren't doing this. And uh, I got pretty good at it, I, I, I guess, because he promoted me. It wasn't too long in productions that he said, I'm going to graduate you from the house lights, which is a long panel of switches, And he says, 
and I'm going to promote you to the stage lights. Now, these have the colors to them, and there are different controls and sliders and dimmers. And I'm still 12, 13 at this point, maybe 14, and I got a promotion, so a lot more responsibility. So I'm, I'm just loving life, you know, living it. And then you might know the name Mark Lowry, a, a singer, Christian singer. He was coming to town and was going to do a concert at the same auditorium, at brother, my brother-in-law's ministry, and I got another promotion. And I'm still just 13, maybe 14 at this time. I got another promotion. I don't have to do house lights. That's for the plebes to do. <laughs> uh, I'm not, I don't have to do stage lights. That's easy. I was asked to operate the lone spotlight on Mark Lowry in an outdoor concert against the backdrop of a New York mountain. Yep, little teenager back there. I thought I was hot stuff. I didn't do too well. <laughs> Um, Mark never said anything to me, but my brother-in-law was laughing at me because it was outdoor in the summer. I got this bright spotlight. I'm doing the whole thing. He had worked with me to know how to do this and follow Mark and all that. But I was outside in the summer. What, what flies around outside in the summer at night in the mountains of New York? Bugs, mosquitoes, moths. You get knocked over by a June bug coming at you. And they were hitting me like I was, it was open season. They were knocking me over. So I would, you know, do this, or I'd, one would be biting me. I'd, every time I moved at all, what happened to Mark Lowry's spotlight? <laughs> I didn't know because I wasn't looking. I was, I was on him, and then I was like, got to kill this thing, you know. And so I, get, I had people literally turning around during the concert. It was a real blessing. So I, that was the last time he asked me to help with lights of any kind. <laughs> and I hope he listens to this. Um, I'm still bitter about that. Well, what was really cool about working a spotlight is, is this. I was able to tell the people, so to speak, what I want them to focus on. Mark Lowry. When you and I are persecuted because we're children of the King, we're children of our Heavenly Father, we are in the, under the Lordship of Jesus, and they, and they attack us for that, we get to tell where we, the unsaved where we want them to focus. And it's on the resilience that the grace of the gospel and the person of Christ produces in us. You hit me, you're just going to see Jesus more. You are blessed. You are in a place to be envied. But your spiritual smile is anything but flippant. This brings us to the third Reality you need to recite to yourself in that corner between rounds. You are invincible, you are blessed, and number three, you are busy. You are busy. This isn't skipping through life and through the persecution passively. No, you are very busy. You're not cowering. You're not relaxing. You're not faking. You're not sleeping, waiting for the storm to pass. Oh, no, when you are persecuted for Christ, you're very busy. Very busy. You say, busy doing what? Well, first of all, you're embracing lordship. You're embracing the lordship of Christ. It's something that you've accepted already, but you get to live it out, especially in suffering. Look at verse 14 again. It says, and it's a quote from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 13, Do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Yeah. 
He's saying the same principle that we see in Isaiah 8, where we read, It's the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, he shall be your dread. Words given to a king of Judah when a northern tribe of Israel and another country were getting ready to invade. And God's saying through Isaiah to the king of Judah and to the people of Judah, don't be afraid of stuff they'd be afraid of. You fear me. I got this. You're embracing the lordship of Christ. It is interesting. In Isaiah 8.13, this is a reference to Jehovah or Yahweh. And what does Peter do with it in this verse? He says, oh, by the way, Yahweh is Jesus. He's Jesus. He quotes this Isaiah passage about Yahweh. And then he says, now sanctify Christ, Messiah, as Lord in your hearts. Set him apart. Make, make what you value in your heart distinct. This is no other honor but Christ. You make him stand out as your lead and as your Lord. I like what theologian Wayne Grudem says on this point. He says, to reverence Christ as Lord means really to believe that Christ not one's human opponents, is truly in control of all events. To have such reverence in your hearts is to maintain continually a deep-seated inward confidence in Christ as reigning Lord and King, end quote. As you're persecuted, you know that Christ is over this. You're going to submit to his lordship. You say, what's he over? He's over your circumstances. As a matter of fact, Paul put it this way, no test will ever confront you with such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able to handle, but will with that test, that temptation, make a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You say, I can't handle this persecution for Jesus. Well, the promise of Scripture is, if you truly couldn't handle it, God's promise is, you wouldn't be facing it. The fact that you're facing it, even persecution, means that by God's grace and with his presence operative in your life and his lordship over you, you can handle it. He's sovereign lord over your circumstances, and he's also sovereign lord over you in the worst of circumstances. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, Luke 6.46? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you don't do what I say? I've told you this persecution's coming. I told you I'd be there with you. And I told you that your faith will survive. Missionary Jim Elliott, you know that name. He wrote these words, rest in this. It is his business to lead. It is his business to command. It is his business to impel, send, call, or whatever you want to call it. It's your business to obey and follow and move and respond or what have you. End quote. Yeah. You want to know a secret about lordship? Lordship sounds confining, doesn't it? Lordship's like, I guess I don't want anything anymore. I guess I don't have any freedom. No, that's false. Lordship for the Christian equals freedom. It equals freedom. What did Jesus say in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30? Take my yoke. Because a yoke, a yoke restrains you if you're an ox goes around your neck, and now you've got to go where the 
The farmer says to go. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, talking of his lordship, and learn of me, for I'm meek. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. You say, wait a minute, I'm still constrained. But it's wherever he wants you to go is the best place of freedom for you. Oh, you're busy. You're embracing lordship, but let her be. You're also exposing idolatry. When you're getting hit, idolatry can show up in your life, not statues on a mantle. But did you notice in verse 15, sanctify Christ as Lord where? In your hearts. In your hearts. You see, between these boxing rounds of being persecuted for Jesus, what might you be tempted to sanctify in your hearts or to elevate as a source of your joy and relief when you're getting pummeled, you might worship and wish for man's approval. You might worship that. Say, if only they liked me instead of hated my Lord, things would be better. You might hope for easy days. You might say, if I could just escape this, I would be filled with joy and and peace. If my life could just be one scene after another of Camelot. If I could only go back to the good old days. If we start saying, if only I could, if only if I could have or do or experience, and we're getting persecuted by Jesus, and it's anything other than Jesus Himself that we covet and treasure for our rest and peace, then we are guilty of idolatry. The hot water exposes what's in the tea bag, as Jim Berg says. Maybe that's why John says in 1 John 5, 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. We have the Olympics coming up this summer. Some, I imagine many of us will watch at least some of the sports. When we talk about sanctifying Christ as Lord in your hearts, we're not talking about Jesus sharing a podium. He's on the first place medal stand, the elevated one. And whatever we had up there got moved down to second or third place. It's not what we're talking about here. Jesus is the only place of elevation in our affections and hearts. We're exposing idolatry. We're embracing lordship. But let her see we're enjoying opportunities too. We're enjoying opportunities. Look at verse 15 in the middle of the verse. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. I see two facts in these, uh, this verse and a half. Fact number one, you're enduring persecution. the enduring hope that's operative in you will create a curiosity. How are they holding up like this? Can't they tell it's all of us against a few of them? It creates a curiosity. That's fact number one. They're watching. They're studying. They want you to crumble. But you're being ready to make a defense to anyone who wonders how you're doing that. The second fact is, your response must reflect your hope. 
it must be given consistently with how a true child of God should respond to hostile people who hate Christ. It says it has to be done with gentleness and with reverence. Keeping a good conscience so that they'll be put to shame. Hmm. This is the word kindness. It doesn't mean that you are not full of strength. It means that all of your strength that you have in Christ is bridled. Your spirit is under control by the grace of Christ at work in you. And your speech is respectful. He's already spoken about this earlier in this epistle in chapter 2. You know, sometimes I wonder when I read this, if Peter is thinking back in his mind to another scene that we have in the Gospels, particularly in Matthew 26, 69, where Peter had this opportunity. He was in the courtyard with John when Jesus is on trial with the priest, the high priest, and he denies. Peter, Peter buckles under the pressure and denies Jesus when he had an opportunity to stand his ground and take the hit. It's interesting, if that's the case, we know that Peter is restored by Jesus himself in John 21, but he had a second chance. <laughs> and Mr. Second Chance, then, is now the coach to these who are getting hit. You're enjoying opportunities that this persecution in the public forum and in your personal life because you're a Christian is providing for you to speak and live the grace of Jesus. But you're also busy because, letter D, you're evaluating circumstances. You're evaluating circumstances. Verse 17, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Peter has already covered this exact topic, and he's bringing it to their, mem their memory yet once again. You're always looking out for sin that may be bringing on your suffering. If you are bringing on your suffering, that's bad. That's what the government's there for, to make sure that people who do bad suffer. <laughs> we talked about that in chapter 2. But you're also looking out, number two, of a sin in you, a sinful response in you to the suffering. If they strike at your Lord through you and you return a receipt with the same spitefulness in your tone and cutting remarks, that needs repentance as well. You, this suffering, you know what suffering does? It purges the Christian. It purges the church from, from shallow, quasi-professors only in Christ. But on a personal level, suffering purges sin from your life as well. Maybe that's why we read in chapter 2, and we'll read in chapter 4 twice, that it's God's will for these difficulties to come, because he's refining you. You're evaluating circumstances to see what they're bringing out of your heart that wouldn't come out of your heart had you not been in the difficult situations. See, huh. In that corner, you need to recite to yourself between rounds, I'm invincible, I'm blessed, I'm busy, 
I still feel vulnerable. I don't know if I'm going to make it through. And that brings me to the fourth reminder for your corner. And it's verses 18 through 22. You are victorious. You are already victorious. Even in the suffering. You say, I'm not through it yet. You're victorious. You say, well, you better explain that. Because I don't feel like it in the moment. Yeah, the fact is you've already won. You have a clean conscience positionally. You say, well, I want to know more about that. And then Peter says, let me give you an illustration. I want to see someone else demonstrate this. And so what Peter's going to do in the remaining verses of chapter 3 is give the ultimate illustration of endurance. It's the same example he used in chapter 2 when he reached for an example of suffering unjustly, and it's Jesus Christ himself. And here at the end of chapter 3, he reaches yet again for Jesus as the ultimate illustration of endurance. But within that ultimate illustration, there's going to be another illustration to make the same point within that bigger illustration. Yes, we now come in verses 18 through 22 to one of the most, what's the word I should use for this, debated, frustrating, confusing passages in all of Scripture. Some would say in the New Testament, yeah, I'm going to throw, after the past three days, I'm throwing it in with both Testaments. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said about these verses, it's a wonderful text and a more obscure text perhaps than any other in the New Testament, and this is Martin Luther talking, so that I do not know for certainty just what Peter means, end quote. Martin Luther. D. Edmund Hebert, an excellent commentator, says about just verse 19, he says, each of the nine words in verse 19 in the Greek has been fiercely debated and differently understood. I went to verse 19, I counted up the Greek, there's nine words, nine Greek words. You start pouring through the material, every single one of them is debated. You having a, you looking forward to this Bible study? Simon Kistemacher in his classic commentary says, we cannot expect unanimity in the interpretation of this passage. We just can't. And then he says, concurrence eludes us. Wow, okay. So what's in these verses? I want to, look, I want to show them to you one more time. Look at verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Just stop there just for a moment. You understand what I just read is an amazing summary of the gospel message for which you're being persecuted? Jesus is the Christ. For Christ, the Messiah, has died for his sins. No, for, the, for, for sins, the just for the unjust, once for all. He was sinless and he died for sin that didn't belong to him 
It belonged to those who will believe. And it was a one-time sacrifice unlike the temple. What's the purpose for that? Because he was wanting to, he was, the plan is to rescue you and he be the one that brings you to God the Father. Since he died for your sins, if you believe, and, and he rose. That's the gospel message. I got to pause after reading that verse and say two things. Number one, that's a great summary statement. Number two, have you accepted that? You say, dress it up with pictures and poems and illustrations. No, sometimes you just need to read the verse. Is there a reason why perhaps you haven't accepted Jesus and this eternal life, this acceptance to the Heavenly Father that he died to purchase and he offers to you? Have you accepted that? It's interesting. Everything I just read in verse um, 18, I believe Peter saw firsthand. He was there at the trial. He knew what was happening. I don't know if he was within eyeshot of the cross, even from a great distance. He saw the trial, the first part. He denied and he ran. But when some ladies came to the disciples three days later on Sunday and said he's risen, he ran to the tomb, he saw the empty tomb. He saw the resurrected Christ appear several times to the disciples and was there in Acts chapter 1 verses 6 through 11 and watched Jesus ascend into the sky for his ascension. Peter saw all that. And you just saw it all in one verse. Have you accepted that? But we got to press down to the final verses and our final moments together here. I preached through this passage in 2014, in December of 2014 to be exact. That's 10 years ago, man. As I knew that this passage was coming back, I decided, as I have with every passage in Peter, I want to restudy it from zero. Not only using the parts of my library I had in 2014, but new books I've received since then, more current. And so what I did the last three days is I did restudy this fully. And the position I arrived at on this in 2014 had to be open to full scrutiny in my mind, with a willingness to change my position. A full willingness. You know the names I, I studied, some of these. Wayne Grudem, Schreiner, John MacArthur, Charles Ryrie, Raymer at Dallas Seminary, the NIV, uh, the Zondervan NIV Study Bible, which is edited by Don Carson and Andy Nacelli, the CSB Study Bible, which reflects conservative Southern Baptist scholarship, William McDonald, D. Edmund Hebert, Davids, and a lot of these people are referencing other classic works by the likes of Selwyn, Dalton, and even St. Augustine. Throw names like Heiser, Michael Heiser into this. My eyes are burning and my brain is sweating after three days. But I wanted to chase it down as much as I could under the dare from Martin Luther. I gotta say Luther won this one. But I went to study and uh, I agree with Grudem, who says, here are some questions that make this passage con concerning. Listen to this. Three questions. Who are the spirits in prison? Number two, what did Christ preach? And number three, when did he preach it? You have options for each of these. There's no, there's no shallow end of the swimming pool for the next five minutes, just so you know. Stop reaching for the bottom. 
that first question, who are the spirits in prison? Well, that requires three options. These are either unbelievers who have died, and some would teach, are going to get a second opportunity to get, to get eternal life. Well, we don't believe in that. We don't take that position. Others say these are Old Testament believers who have died. I'm sorry, I got that mixed up. What I just said applies to Old Testament believers who have died. They're going to get a second chance to get saved. We don't believe that. Or these are unbelievers from the Old Testament who have died. Or these are fallen angels. So who are these spirits in prison? You've got three main options there. That second question, what did Christ preach? It says that there was proclamation made. Some people say he was preaching a second chance for repentance, which is false. Some believe that uh, he was going to preach the completion of his redemption work, and others that he was going to preach and deliver a message of final condemnation and victory. Which one are you going to choose? And Grudem's third question is, when did he preach? Did he preach in the days of Noah? During the 120 days of the construction of the ark? I come to believe that's going to be an important question to figure out. Or is he preaching this message between his death and resurrection? Or is he preaching this sermon after his resurrection? Are you dizzy yet? It's in the scripture. i got to deal with this passage today. Stay with me. There are four or five popular views. Some list as many as eight views to this. You're saying you're not going to give us all those. No. But there are two very well, um, well-revered positions. I would say these are the top two. And I'm going to read this passage again with you, starting with verse 18 and down to verse 20, trying to communicate with you what each position is saying about that verse. The first position, I call this the Noah position. That's going to be this side of the room. If every time I point over here, this is the Noah side. This group believes that when Christ rose, um, he, he rose from the dead, of course, uh, but then it's going to go to the next verse and say that this Christ is the same one who preached through Noah during the construction of the ark to the people who were rejecting God, giving them a time to repent. And, uh, and if they didn't repent, they would be doomed in the, in the floodwaters. Okay? Now with that view in mind, let me read that passage with you. Look at verse 18. But Saint, or, for Christ also died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the little s spirit, in which also... He went and made proclamation. That's a word for preaching, to proclaim a message. It's the same word that Peter's going to use again in his second letter, dealing with Noah as a preacher. Same, same word source. He went and made proclamation to the saints now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. When is this preaching happening? Well, the scene in my mind is Genesis chapter 6. That's not really up for debate. It's Genesis 6. At the beginning of Genesis 6, you hear about how the sons of God took the daughters of men and went into them and there was sexual sin. 
and even a crossing of lines not meant to be crossed. I don't believe they produced offspring, but that's a different sermon about a different passage at a different time. But that's how bad it was then. I, I believe there was demonic activity in that. But the time of this preaching didn't happen before what was announced would be the flood and the building of an ark. This preaching is happening during the 120 years of the construction of the ark in this view. And it says that Christ uh, was preaching to the spirits in prison. You say, well, how's that? Well, Peter already said in the same epistle in chapter 1, talking about the prophets in the Old Testament, that the spirit of Christ in them, it's a quote, So this is language that Peter has already started to use back in chapter 1 about the spirit of Jesus in Old Testament prophets. And we know from 2 Peter that Noah is considered a prophet. So this view says that, that Jesus, when damnation and judgment was promised and Noah was commissioned and an ark was built, that Jesus through Noah, was preaching repentance because we know in 2 Peter 1 that he was a preacher of righteousness. Noah was. It was the Spirit of Christ preaching through Noah for those 120 years as it took that long to build this ark, just eight people, probably just four, who knows, and, 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 um, and they wouldn't repent. Mercy was being offered and it was rejected and, and we can surmise there was even ridicule. And so what this is saying, according to this view, is that Jesus, through the preaching of Noah, during those 120 years, was preaching, this is important, to humans, mankind, sinful mankind, that because of their wickedness was bringing on a judgment from God. That's that side. This side over here, if that's the Noah team, this is the victory tour team. This view says... That Jesus, and there's debate even on this side whether it was between his death and resurrection or between his resurrection and ascension. Jesus himself went to the place where demon spirits, demonic uh, spirits, were imprisoned. And as they were imprisoned, you say, why were they imprisoned? Because in Genesis 6, this view says that they... They crossed lines and God locked them up uh, and they're really going to suffer for this one. And then we have the whole ark and flood thing come on the scene. And what, this, what the victor, victory tour people say is, is that Jesus, when he conquered the dead, or as some of them would say, after he died for sins and finished that work of atonement. There's debate in that camp about when this happened. But Jesus went to the abode, to this prison, this spiritual prison where these demons are kept until the final judgment and he declared victory to them. You tried to, to, to ruin creation and, and, and in your rebellion and in your rebellion not just with, with uh, your leader, Satan, but also uh, the humanity you're attempting to destroy through arousing my wrath. I just want you to know I won. And I love that. And so they would, it would read this way, that when he was made alive in the spirit, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. 
Say, where do you come down? Man, it's been a long three days. There's some good points to both of these. There's good reason that these are the final two points, uh, or, or two of the, I would say, top three positions. Um, some would even say the victory tour position is the, is the, has all the numbers. It's, the, it, it, it's what people stand in today in the majority of conservative commentators and, and scholars. So they have the numbers. But the thing about the Noah, preaching through Noah, the spirit of Christ, especially since Peter started using that language in chapter 1, about the spirit of Christ and the prophets, that's, they don't have the numbers of this position, but this is the oldest one going all the way back to St. Augustine. Doesn't make it right since it's the oldest, just as it doesn't make it right necessarily because of the numbers. But I just want to point that out to you. What's important is that both of them, we have to stay with Peter's context here of you suffering as a Christian. And both of these honor that. The victory tour people have a context of suffering, and it's suffering at the hands of the people who were under the demonic um, effect in the pre-flood days. Um, I like about this position that it focuses on Jesus as, a, as an example for the second time in two chapters of Christ's suffering. He's doing what he's done before. I like this declaration of triumph to those demons. Um, I like the chronology that uh, some of these people hold that it happened after the resurrection. And I like the fact that if it is proclamation of victory over demons, that's consistent with verse 22 that we're going to read. That says, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. I think those are strong points of this, this position. I hesitate on a few points with this position. Some would say it's too, not just me, others would say it's too dependent on 2 Peter, which these, writer, these readers wouldn't have had yet. Because we're going to see things in 2 Peter and again in Jude that would tie in, they would say, with this. Um, some would say this position is too dependent on extra-biblical writings beyond what biblical writers used. Um, it's not, this position in my mind isn't focused directly on human rescue, human um, persecution. And I have a question, as others do about this position, why not all demons? Isn't rebellion rebellion? Why are there some that are locked up and not others? And Tom Schreiner holds this position. He's one of the best that holds this position in my mind. But even he says, I don't know. I mean, isn't rebellion rebellion? Shouldn't all demons? And by the way, you say, well, Satan's a, a, a demon. Yes, remember that. He's the leader, but remember, he's only an angel, a fallen angel. Why isn't he locked up? If these demons, as a subgroup, did something so bad, they had to go to the really bad room. Well, Satan's the leader, and he's not locked up until the millennial kingdom that we read about in Revelation 20. It's just an answer I want that I don't hear. And what do you mean, once disobedient demons? They, they're talking about the, the disobedience that happened in a set time in Genesis 6. Is that demons or were demons disobedient before the Genesis 6 thing? I think the answer is obvious on that. And by the way, the flood that we're talking about came to destroy men, not demons. And what do we mean about the patience of God waiting during the building of the ark? Waiting for what if it's demons? For demons to repent? That's interesting to me. Well, some observations about the Noah focus, guys. It too has a context of 
human resistance, suffering. This one has humans creating the suffering that we have to endure through, just like Noah and his family would have endured. It's the context of perseverance against suffering. That's where Peter is. There's a context of evangelism while you're suffering. Peter's been writing about that in all chapters so far, all three chapters. There's a declaration of triumph in this one as well, but it's with the ark and how the, the unjust and the wicked are judged, the ones outside the ark. The once disobedient thing makes sense in my mind with this team because um, uh, it's, about, it's talking about the humans that were rebelling, that were the occasion for the flood to wipe them off the face of the earth, not to wipe out of existence all, demo- all demons. And by the way, the patience of God and waiting that we read about on this side makes perfect sense if the preaching is being done to humans. Well, this side has weaknesses too, though. It makes verse 22, the last line of verse 22, kind of stark in its introduction. It's not a deal killer, but I note that. And the word spirit and spirits most often in the New Testament is used to describe demons. But on several occasions, not just a few, on several occasions it's used to describe a human. So what are we going to do with this? I hope you're confused by now. Join me. Jump in. The pool water is great. I want to say this about both positions. They both bridge the gap in what Peter's saying in chapter 3, verse 17, to chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, and it's enduring and suffering. Whatever they say, they have to contribute to that theme. And I believe both of them do. Both positions do. They both declare victory over Satan and demons. This side does it earlier in the text, in verse 20, 19 and 20. This side does in verse 22. So they both include that. Some even say it's possible that if you can hold one position and still get the benefit of the other one, Once you move out of just Peter, what we're doing as we preach from chapter 1, verse 1 to the end of this epistle, we're doing biblical theology. We're making propositional statements, theological statements. It's called biblical theology as it unfolds from Peter's pen. When you start doing systematic theology, you start tying in what Peter says in this book with what he says elsewhere or what Paul says, and you build out from that. Using systematic theology, we still get all the elements of both. What did Yogi Berra say, that great Bible scholar? He said, when you come to a fork in a road, what do you do? You take it. Well, we still can't do that. And our time's gone, and i got to declare something. In 2014, when I preached through this, I came down heavily on the Noah side. I didn't go with the numbers. I didn't even go with my man, John MacArthur, on this one. Um, I was most convinced that there were le- there were fewer questions left unanswered with this position, from my thinking. But I laid that all on the table the last three days. And I come to you now saying, I'm in the same place. But I'm holding a little lighter, and I'm considering a little more of this position, but I haven't been swayed from my original position on this. And that's fine. We have variety in this church, I guarantee it. But I did note John MacArthur trying to get away with something. 
you say, who's over on this side? Over here you have, um, you have MacArthur, uh, Schreiner, the NIV Study Bible. You have the Holman, or the Holman Christian Standard Bible translation over here, but the Holman Christian Standard Bible Study Bible notes on the same page is over here. Sorry, Southern Baptist. You have Hebert, you have David, Selwyn, Dalton. Over here you have Wayne Grudem, Raymer, Ryrie, McDonald, and others. I, uh, I, I just find myself still here because there's fewer questions left unanswered. But what MacArthur did is if you read his notes in his study Bible, which reflect a lot of what he did in his commentary, um, he's going to go with the demonic victory triumph announcement. But in his unpacking of the rest of this passage, he's going to talk about the problem was with humanity and the sinfulness of humanity the whole time, and it was the demonic forces behind that humanity rebellion. And he's going to emphasize that uh, the, the need of the problem being humans and therefore repentance needing to happen there. And he won't deny the fact that Noah in Second Peter one is called a preacher or two is called a preacher of righteousness. There you go. Swim over to the side of the pool now. We made it. Nursery workers are are sending distress signals. Let, let me just say this. Don't lose sight of Peter's whole goal to encourage these believers to come out of that corner in the face of suffering. The goal all along, even with the examples of Christ and then Noah in the ark, is about endurance. It's about victory. And even here at the end of this chapter, it says, corresponding to that, and that's word of typology. We're allowed to find types in Scripture that Scripture says this is a type, and it's, this is one of those verses. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Those people that believed God entered the ark. There were only eight, and that ark floated in these waters. It says you were, you were saved uh, by the waters, and the answer is no. Peter's saying you were saved through the waters. The waters were waters of judgment. Those who responded in faith and entered into the ark were safe. Everyone else perished. And it's the same with Christians today. That ark is a type of Jesus. And those in the ark are a picture of you who've responded by faith to Jesus. And, and, and as a believer in Christ, you've obeyed him for the sake of a good conscience to follow him and publicly identify through the waters of baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. He says it right here, it doesn't. But it's that public identification for the sake of a clear conscience. Now, if Christ, verse 22, is at the right hand of God, where are you positionally? In Christ, you're safe. He's already in heaven. Not only has he won, you've won. And in the worst case, even the, the demonic hordes have been subjected to him. Yeah, it's that fifth one. You're victorious. So you and I have to move past today. We have to move past this text and you know what? We're still going to enjoy debate, research, rebuttals, hero authors. We, you have yours, I have mine. Ribbing. But listen, here's my plea. 
if we only end our study of this text with locked horns, we've missed the message. The message has been this, present persecution is the roadway to eternal triumph. Don't miss the whole picture. Don't miss the context that Peter has, not in, only in this paragraph, but the one before it and the one coming after it, by merely focusing on a few particular brushstrokes in the picture. Peter is being clear and forthright to you and me between rounds. You are invincible, you are blessed, you are busy, and you are victorious when you're being persecuted. Answer the bell. Father, we thank you for a text that your people will continue to look into and debate and change until we are in your presence. We've prayed for clarity. But Lord, help us not to miss the big picture, the pastoral note from Peter's pen to endure persecution because we've already won. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.